Letter sixty six, part three of the History of Lady Barton. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Devorah Allen. The History of Lady Barton by Elizabeth Griffith. Letter sixty six, part three. Miss Cleveland to Lady Barton. The following episode of The Fair Cottager, though short, will be some relief to us both, before we proceed to the catastrophe of the main action, and conclude the history of the unfortunate Maria, whose peculiar fate suffered not her indignities to terminate with her life, but afterwards delivered over her course into the clutches of the brute Colville, to be carried in the procession of a mock funeral at Amiens. THE STORY OF MRS. N. My mother was the only child of Captain H., a younger brother of a distinguished family. Her ill fortune brought her acquainted very young with Mr. W., while he was a student at Oxford, and under age. They saw, liked, and wedded, without the consent of parents on either side. Captain H. was afterwards made acquainted with the marriage, but died before my other grandfather, from whom it was thought prudent to keep it still a secret as my dear mother inherited but a very inconsiderable portion. This was made a pretense for keeping their union concealed during the life of his father, and my mother, who tenderly loved her husband, consented to let their connection still wear the veil of mystery, rather than injure his interest or offend his father. The doubtfulness of her situation by degrees detached her own friends entirely from her, and for some years before the death of his father she lived in perfect solitude, hardly ever seeing any person but her husband and me, her only child, who were the sole objects of her care and affection. I was about seven years old when my grandfather W. died, and I am persuaded that if my mother felt any joy upon that occasion, it was for my sake only, as she wished to have my legitimacy acknowledged and my education properly attended to. A long habit of retirement had weaned her from the world, and though of an age to relish all its pleasures, being then but four-and-twenty, she thought of returning into it rather with disgust than delight. Upon various pretenses my father declined owning his marriage for about two years, and the gentleness of my mother's temper prevented her from importuning him on this or any subject. But when so long an interval had elapsed, since his father's death, and that she perceived a visible alteration in his behaviour towards her, she with the utmost mildness expressed her wishes to live with him publicly as his wife. He strove for near a year more to evade her request, but when her apprehensions began to be alarmed by his conduct, and that she ventured so far as to press him on the subject, he slew into a rage, and utterly denied his having ever been married to her. Tears and prayers were all the weapons with which she attempted to assert her rights. They had, alas, no power on his obdurate heart, Grief preyed upon her tender frame, and when I had just entered my tenth year she fell into a consumption. She was sensible of her approaching fate, and though she had remitted her own claim to my father's rank or fortune, she determined not to leave me in the power of a man who had abandoned her to unmerited infamy, but immediately to set about proving her marriage, and by that means entitling me to both his name and a proper provision from his fortune. She soon found out that Dr. N., the clergyman who had married her, lived in the parish of blank, in this shire, and that my grandfather, old Mr. W., had presented to him that living which was incumbent on some part of my father's estate. 
she took me with her and set out immediately for his house, which expedition she could easily make without her husband's knowledge, as they had seldom lived under the same roof together for some time past. It is impossible to express this worthy man's surprise at the sight of my mother and me, as my father had informed him that she was dead above three years before, left no child, and earnestly requested him never to mention his having been married to her, as it could answer no end to her then, would certainly disoblige some of his relations, through whose assistance, he said, he had conceived reasonable hopes of strengthening his interest in the shire, and of improving his fortune. As soon as my mother had acquainted him with her story, the good old man promised her to pay a visit the next day to my father, who had been his pupil at the university, and endeavor to influence him by gentle means to do her the justice he owed her, rather than reduce her to the irksome necessity of exposing him and herself by an appeal to some higher and more legal tribunal, assuring her at the same time that if his mediation should not be attended with that success which he wished, and had reason to expect from it, he would no longer hesitate a moment about proving the marriage through all the forms of law. My dear unhappy mother wept and thanked him, and the doctor, according to his promise, proceeded the next day to Castle W., which is about ten miles from this village, being the mansion seat where my father then resided. It happened that he was from home at the time the doctor went to his house, and in the fullness of his zeal he wrote him an admonitory letter upon this interesting subject, and returned, much disappointed at not having seen him. In a few days after this event, my father came to Dr. N.'s, and endeavored to make my mother's mind easy upon the equivocal appearances of his conduct towards her, imputing it to all the prudential reasons he had before mentioned to the doctor, in which he said that the future welfare of herself and family were equally interested, adding that their living together in England could not be long concealed, but that he was ready to retire with her to any part of Flanders, upon pretense of his going to travel for a few years, till the schemes he had in agitation might be brought to bear, when they might return home again and enjoy the remainder of their lives in happiness and honour together. My dear mother, as was natural to an unsuspecting and ingenuous mind, was fondly amused with this artifice, and wept with transport at his mock professions. The doctor, too, blessed his pupil with tears of joy, and my father returned back to Castle W. the next day, in order to prepare everything necessary towards our departure for the continent, without any further delay. But this delusion did not long continue. For the morning after he had left us, Mr. N., a young ensign and nephew to Dr. N., happened to come from Exeter, where he was then stationed, to pay a visit to his uncle, and among other articles of news, told him that his landlord and patron, as he styled my father, was soon to be married to a young lady of family and fortune in the city he came from and that he supposed the doctor would be then called upon to perform the ceremony. The young man had never heard anything of our story, and only mentioned this particular among some other indifferent circumstances of the time. His uncle did not open his mind to him upon the subject, but retired immediately to my mother's apartment, who happened luckily not to be by when this matter was related, and after endeavouring to prepare her as much as possible for the shock, acquainted her with the intelligence he had just received. To you, dear madam, who seem to have known affliction, it must be needless to describe the emotions of my unhappy mother upon this occasion. The humane Dr. N. said everything he could think of to assuage her distraction, and repeated the promise he had made her before, of concurring with her in an immediate vindication of her rights, seeing there was now no time to lose, 
and that it was sufficiently apparent Mr. W. meant to take advantage of her too long acquiescence under the concealment of her marriage, and by this new and more public engagement to bar her claim forever. He confessed that notwithstanding his plausible professions to them both at parting, his mind could not help still harboring some doubts with regard to the sincerity of them. For, however, said he, my Christianity may incline me to a perfect faith in the efficacy of divine grace, one is naturally apt to suspect your extempore converts, especially where the Reformation seems, as in this case, to have been brought about by the necessity of some present urgency. He concluded, then, that my father's scheme, in carrying my mother and me out of the kingdom, must be to separate us from the advice or assistance of whatever friends we might have here, and that being bereft of the protection of English laws, he meant to shut us up in a convent together for life, upon some forged pretense or other, which would leave him at liberty to return in triumph home again, and complete his base purpose with his new mistress at Exeter. That very day, Dr. N. gave my mother a regular certificate of her marriage, signed by himself, as the clergyman who had performed the ceremony, referring to the page of the parish registry where that transaction was entered, at the bottom of which he put a memorandum of the names of the two witnesses who were present, one of which is still alive, if that were an article of any manner of consequence to me now. The next day my father came to the house, with a carriage to convey us off privately through the country to Weymouth, where he told us he had prepared a ship to sail over directly to the continent. My mother made no reply, but wept and quitted the room, to leave Dr. N. at liberty to explain the reason of her silence and sorrow. Their conversation was warm, but short. The doctor made remonstrances to him upon his behavior, both from religion, morals, and the law, which my father resented with the highest intemperance, declaring that he had happily one way still left to screen himself from persecution and prosecution both, and then rushed out of the house, which expression was soon after more fully explained by hearing that he had gone off to France, whither no legal process could pursue him. These transactions were kept a perfect secret from me for several years. My fond mother thought it too soon for me to become acquainted with affliction, and our worthy protector had also conceived a certain delicate idea about me with regard to vice. His opinion was certainly just, that the longer young people are kept ignorant of it, the safer for their morals. Purity of thought and innocence of action should be suffered to gain strength by habit before they know that there is such a thing as wickedness in human nature. The shock and abhorrence will be the greater on the first instance, and the danger of example less. Dr. N. kept us with him, and supported us out of his own fortune, while my poor mother lived, or rather languished, which she did for about two years, and then expired of a broken heart. The doctor was so generous as to make her last moments easy, by promising to take care of me, till he could force my father by law to make a provision for me as his legitimate child, saying that he thought it his duty to pay the debt of gratitude he owed to my grandfather to the only part of his family now that deserved it. My father's emissaries soon informed him of my mother's death, and he returned to his seat a joyful widower. The doctor immediately applied to him on my behalf, but so far from being softened by his intercession, he loaded him with abuse, and threatened him with ruin if he did not instantly consent to my being sent to a convent abroad, and solemnly swear never to mention his marriage with my mother, nor again interfere in his domestic affairs upon any occasion or pretense. What became of his exeter amour, I know not, having never heard a word about it since. Faithful to his promise, 
the doctor refused to give him the satisfaction he required, nor would he consent to my going into a convent upon any terms. Conscious of the purity of his life and actions, he disregarded my father's threats and continued to treat me with the same kindness as if I had been his daughter. My father, who was lord of the manor, stirred up most of the doctor's parishioners to non-payment of tithes, and supported them in every kind of insolence and injustice against him. This excellent divine, who was really a believer and follower of the doctrine which he taught, suffered those who had taken his cloak to take his coat also, and having no activity in him but for others, in a very short time was deprived of the means of support, either for himself or family. But why should I dwell longer on those miseries of which I was the unhappy, though innocent, cause? This best of men breathed his last sigh in a prison, about three years after my mother's death, and must latterly have wanted even the common necessaries of life, but for the duty and affection of his nephew, who was now become a captain, and more than shared his little income with him and me, who from the time that my dear guardian was thrown into confinement, had been placed by him to board and lodge with the wife of his parish clerk. During all the sufferings of this true divine, he was never prompted to revile the cruel author of them, nor to repine at the wretched state to which he was reduced, and even to his last moments comforted and exhorted both me and his fellow prisoners to bear their crosses with resignation, with cheerfulness, and with forgiveness to their persecutors and oppressors. While the doctor was able to keep house, Captain N. used often to visit there, and stay sometimes whole months together with us and after his uncle's misfortune which separated us, he came frequently to see me at my new lodgings. He was a very worthy, agreeable young man. We had insensibly conceived a liking for each other, and just before his uncle's death he asked his consent to offer his hand and heart to me. The good man confessed himself much pleased at this overture, and upon mentioning it to me said that when I should no longer have a protector in him I must either be thrown upon the world to get my bread in a state of servitude, which he thought both dangerous and improper for me, or obliged to sue to my father for a support, which he feared he would refuse, unless he were to confine me in a convent, which he most earnestly entreated me not to consent to, but to persevere in suffering for the faith wherein I had been bred. And with regard to his nephew, he paid me the compliment to think I was capable of rendering him happy, and that eventually I might turn out a good fortune to him, either by my father's death or reformation. I received the proposal, I confess, with pleasure, and readily pronounced that consent with my lips which my heart had given before. My more than father, my guardian, my protector, now saw his desire accomplished in our union. With his dying hands he joined ours, and then slept in peace. For three whole years I was the happiest of humankind, my husband was all that my fondest wishes could have framed. That child you saw was his delight and mine. No frown e'er clouded either of our brows, or slightest contradiction passed our lips. I was, I was too blessed, till heaven reclaimed its best, its dearest gift, and took him early to reward his virtues. Though bred with such a shining pattern as Dr. N. before me, and long nurtured as I had been in the school of adversity, yet this trial was too much for my weak mind, which sunk oppressed into lethargic woe. The voice of reason is not heard by grief. Religion only reaches the sad heart. Cheered by the boundless hope of passing an eternity of bliss with him I now lamented, 
I raised my drooping eyelids from the grave, and turned my views to heaven, implored its grace to bend my stubborn soul to its high will, and soothe my warring passions to submission. My prayer was heard. No murmurs, no complainings from that pious moment of reflection have issued from my lips. In humble confidence, without impatience, I wait for my dismission from this veil of sorrow. Yet let me own that were there not a weight thrown in that scale that ties me down to earth, my resignation would have had more merit. My dear, my much-loved boy, abates my ardor for the land of bliss, and makes me fear that while his fate is doubtful, I should even shudder on the brink of my long-wished-for voyage. In a heart rightly formed, there cannot be a void. Maternal fondness now fills the place of chaste connubial love, and in this soft exercise of my affections, no griefs distract, no transports rend my soul. This place I live in is a freehold that Captain H., my grandfather, had purchased, soon after I was born, for the term of three lives, his own, my mother's, and mine. His wife had been dead some years before. It consists of this cottage, a small plowland, a close for pasture, and a little garden at an inconsiderable rent. Here I have lived all my life, except while I was sheltered under the protection of the good Dr. N., during which interval the farm was let to a tenant at will, till I was married, when my dear husband and I came to reside here, as much as his military duty would permit. And here he left me when he was ordered with the regiment abroad last war, in the first campaign of which he was killed. The produce of this small domain, with my pension as a captain's widow, is all I have to maintain my child and me, and require the closest attention and economy to render them sufficient. And even these pittances depend upon the precarious tenure of my life. But I will not doubt the goodness of Providence, and trust it will raise him up a support when it shall think proper to withdraw mine. Now judge, unhappy stranger, she continued, if I have not a right to speak of patience, of resignation and religion as the surest balm of sorrow. Philosophy and faith concur in this, there is a hope beyond the grave, and naught but vice, unatoned by penitence and piety, need ever urge despair. I had hung with mute attention on her story. My tears had flowed with hers, and while she spoke, her griefs suspended mine. Admiration of her virtue now succeeded, and kept me silent still. But there, alas, our sympathy must end. She might rejoice in her afflictions past, whilst I must mourn forever. I passed six days with this uncanonized saint, this living patience, of whom Shakespeare's image was but a prototype. She knew me not, all the while, and I could not reveal myself, nor had the particulars of my sad story yet reached her incurious ears to have given her the least cause of suspecting who I was. By various methods and slow degrees, I pursued my journey towards Flintshire, as I drew nearer to my mother's peaceful cottage, I anticipated the misery and horror she would feel when she should know my situation, and considered myself as a wretch who was going to communicate an incurable disease to the fond bosom that had nursed and cherished it. Prophetic were my thoughts. The first emotions she felt on seeing me were those of love and joy. She strained me to her honest breast, with true maternal tenderness, and exclaimed, Mr. W. has at last relented, and blessed me with a sight of my Maria. Whilst I, 
overwhelmed with her unmerited kindness, sunk speechless to the earth. Tears were the sole return that I could make to her caresses and inquiries. My mother was alarmed. Sorrow, she said, my child, we both have known. But sure that should not seal your lips to those who wish to share and soothe your griefs, or render you insensible to love like mine. I grasped her honored hand, pressed it to my heart, and vainly strove to articulate a sound. For several hours I remained in this situation. At length my speech returned, and throwing myself on my knees before her, I could not be prevailed on to forsake that posture till I had recounted to her the whole of that horrid tale which you have just now read. I will not wound your heart, my brother, with attempting to describe the agonies she suffered during the sad recital of my story. Yet this truly virtuous, this scarce erring woman, pitied the crimes which she herself detested, and spoke of peace and pardon to my afflicted soul, even to the latest moment of her life, for she is dead. She strove to hide her anguish and to lessen mine. The night I got there, after I had been in bed and just falling into a slumber, from the fatigue of my journey and the waste of my spirits, I was alarmed by the noise of some persons who knocked loudly at the door of the house and demanded admittance. The people with whom we lodged refused them entrance, unless they would first declare the purpose of their errand. This they refused, but sending for a sledge, soon battered down all opposition and rushed in. My mother and I had but just time to hurry on our clothes, when an ill-looking fellow with a candle in one hand and a pistol in the other came into our chamber, attended by two other ruffians. Upon their appearance we instantly offered to surrender all our effects, and promised neither to make resistance nor pursuit. They seemed highly to resent our manner of reception, and replied that they scorned to use any manner of violence that might not be justified by the law. The principal of the men then told me that he was steward to Mr. W., and had been dispatched by him with a warrant to apprehend me for the murder of Sir Thomas L., early the next morning after the fact, and my flight for the same, with directions to come and look for me in that place, as it was natural to suppose that I should have flown to my mother for refuge after my crime. He said that he had examined and inquired for me all along the road, and had concealed his business in that village for several days, lying in wait for my arrival. Horror and amazement seized both my unhappy mother and me. I pitied her more than myself. I was hardened to sufferings. I wished to die, though not with ignominy, and felt disappointed at finding the purpose of these housebreakers had ended with so little violence to my life. I apprehended no danger from the prosecution, but to think of an arraignment and a public trial was distraction. I reflected deeply on the divine and sustaining sentiments of the amiable Mrs. N., and her precepts and example had a salutary effect on my mind. The steward then returned to the inn to send off to Chester for a chaise to carry me to Exeter, the county town of Devonshire, to take my trial at the next assizes, which were immediately to be held there, but left his two guards in the house to prevent my escape. My afflicted mother, who had fallen upon the bed when she heard the shocking sentence pronounced, lay silent for a minute, then turning to me, who was standing speechless and motionless before her, with a look of wildness and despair, cried out, "'I'll go with you. I'll die with you. We never shall be parted more.' I threw myself down by her. We embraced and lay folded in each other's arms, till we were summoned the next morning to begin our journey. We travelled with all the expedition that our conductors were pleased to make, 
and suffered every indignity and insolence of office all the way that mean persons are apt to inflict on those above them whenever they happen to gain an authority over them. All this I felt not but as I sympathized with my unhappy mother, for as to myself I welcomed every mortification and distress I met with, and even wished them still more severe. We were at length relieved from this oppression by arriving at Exeter, where we were carried directly to the sheriff's house and delivered over into his custody, for my dear mother would not quit me, but said that the same prison or the same grave should receive us both. This humane person behaved with the utmost tenderness and politeness toward us, offered us every refreshment and accommodation that his hospitality could afford, and told me that he would impose no other restraint on me than an earnest request that I would accept of the best apartment in his house, and prevail on my mother to share the same comforts and conveniences with me. He then bowed and retired. He returned soon after, to introduce a gentleman to us, who he said had some affair of business to communicate to me, and then withdrew again. But how was I overwhelmed with confusion when the person announced his name to be Captain R. The confidant of my shame stood before me. My trial was begun already. I felt as if I was at the bar. This gentleman behaved with great good breeding and compassion to me on that occasion. He scarcely looked at me, but going up directly to my mother, whom he saw in tears, assured her that she need not suffer the least uneasiness on account of her daughter, as he had already made her innocence appear so fully to the justice that she was not to be arraigned on the trial, and might now consider herself perfectly free from her arrest. He prevented us. He would not listen to our acknowledgments, but directing his discourse to me, though without turning his eyes towards me, thus proceeded. In order to make you acquainted with the present situation of this unhappy business, it is necessary for me, madam, to recount the regular process of it, from the moment I had been informed of the event, by an anonymous billet, to this time. I soon guessed the writer, and as quickly suspected the author of the tragedy. Upon these hints, I immediately applied to a magistrate in the neighborhood, and after having given in my depositions, according to the notice I had received, I became armed with proper force and authority, and rode directly to Castle W. I was not denied admission, and upon opening my commission, Mr. W. charged you, madam, directly with the fact, said you had absconded immediately after the murder, and that he had just then issued a warrant and dispatched a pursuit after you, in order to have you apprehended and delivered over into the hands of justice. Then, by way of supporting his assertion by circumstances, led me upstairs into the room where the corpse lay extended on the ground, showed me the discharged pistol lying on the bed, and pointed to the blood with which the coverlet had been stained in many places. I wept over the body of my dear friend, said he. Then, turning to Mr. W., showed him the note I had received, and asked him if he knew the hand. Yes, he replied quick, it is my wife's, and one line in it I think sufficiently certifies against her. I do not mean by this notice to call even for justice against his assassin. Whose danger, I pray you, do you imagine she should be so tender of? Would she not have named the assassin if that might have been done with safety to herself? Sir, I replied, you will now give me leave to reason upon the circumstances relative to this melancholy affair in turn. It cannot be difficult, considering the several parties, both separately and connected, to suppose the motive of Sir Thomas's errand hither. And whether it were most natural for the fond mistress or the jealous husband to have been the murderer is a question fitter to be argued in a court than discussed here. For which reason, concluded I, 
I shall pretend to act but ministerially upon this occasion, and therefore I do now, in the name of justice, arrest you and your whole household, in order to take your trials jointly and severally for this murder. Mr. W. seemed startled at this discourse, but talked highly, and began to put himself into a posture of defense, upon which I presented a pistol to his breast, and pointing to the mangled corpse, cried, There, sir, is your example, should you attempt to resist. He then surrendered himself a prisoner, the rest of his family did the same, and after I had got the body laid with decency on the bed, left the servants of the deceased to attend it, and given charge of the funeral to the clergyman of the parish, I escorted my captives to the jail in this city, where they have remained ever since. Upon their examination before a magistrate in this town, continued he, the maid-servant, who said she had attended on you, madam, turned evidence to save her life, and charged her master with the murder. She said that he had come to the house in the evening privately, and desired her to conceal his arrival from her mistress. That he told her there was an assignation fixed for that night between Sir Thomas L. and his wife, and about the time that he thought they might have put out the candles, he took her with him to the room, to be a witness of what he had said would entitle him to a divorce. But that being disappointed in that circumstance, and alarmed at seeing Sir Thomas putting his hand to his sword, he discharged the pistol and killed him on the spot. Mr. W. did not make any manner of interruption or reply to this woman's deposition while it was going on, saying only, after it was over, that he thought himself sufficiently justified in the action, both from law and conscience, and that justice without favor was all he should desire to indemnify him on the day of trial. Thus situated is this unhappy affair at present, and with regard to your arrest, madam, I have had that superseded already before you arrived in town, as the warrant was only founded on surmise and I have given myself bail for your appearance on the trial, just to corroborate the servant-maid's testimony. I had hitherto lain reclined on my arm, hiding my face, tears, and blushes with my hand. But when he came to the last expression, I forgot all reserve, and starting up, No, sir, said I, it cannot, shall not be. I will never appear in evidence against Mr. W. You may drag me before the court, but no violence shall make me speak there. Justice I acknowledge to be a duty, but there are situations which may exempt one from the observance of it. Duties cannot contradict duties, and I have already too far erred against mine to him to think of adding a further injury. And if my death is to be the consequence of my silence, I am willing to pay that forfeit to redeem his. Captain R. seemed struck with my sentiments on so difficult an occasion, and told me that he would consult his lawyers that night, whether my evidence might be dispensed with and would wait on me again the next morning. He then took his leave, and left my poor mother and me to pass an anxious, sleepless night, in mourning the distress of our present situation. The next day he came to us, and said that his counsel had told him that, as he was the prosecutor, he might excuse whatever witness he pleased, especially as the servant-maid's testimony was full enough to the point already. We thanked him extremely for his humanity and politeness, and the instant he retired we hired a chaise, and drove out of the town on our road back to Flintshire, flying as fast as possible from a scene of so much horror. The anxiety of mind, and fatigue of body which my dear mother had laboured under all this while, had brought on a fever that confined her in bed from the moment we reached her habitation in Flintshire. I wept, prayed, and attended on her during her illness till her last moment. She blessed her children, even me she blessed, and prayed for peace and pardon to my polluted soul. She expired in my fainting arms, 
leaving me friendless in a world alone. But fate had not yet done with me. I was not yet unhappy enough. About two days after her death, I received a letter from Captain R., who had found out the place of my residence from Mr. W. Stewart, which brought me the following account from Exeter. The facts and arguments upon which Mr. W. grounded his defense were these. When Mrs. W. had given her letter for Sir Thomas to the messenger, he mentioned it to the gardener, and he communicated his intelligence to her maid, who had been appointed a spy over all her actions. She took it from the man, enclosed it to her master, and sent him off directly with it to London. As soon as he received it, he broke it open and took a copy, which he made his own man compare and witness, then sealed and sent off the original to Sir Thomas by a special messenger, who pretended he had come from Castle W., not caring to entrust the fellow who had brought it, lest he should have betrayed him, as he had before deceived Mrs. W. The answer he proceeded with in the same manner, and then dispatched the first carrier with it to Mrs. W. This state of the case Mr. W. had sent up to London, along with the attested copies of the letters, for the opinion of an eminent counsel, to know whether, upon such a certainty of the fact, and finding the adulterer in such an improper situation with his wife, the laws did not grant some indulgence to the transports and resentment of a provoked and injured husband. The lawyer's reply was that such considerations had indeed been sometimes permitted to be laid before a jury, in alleviation of the crime he had been guilty of, but that it was only in cases where no premeditation had appeared in the matter, and that his was a very different situation, as he had confessed his having been apprised of the assignation, assisted in forwarding the appointment, and had travelled above a hundred miles, with a malice prepensed to take Sir Thomas L. at an unfair advantage." From all which circumstances he concluded that the laws would not consider him as a provoked husband, but a deliberate assassin. This answer deprived him of all hope, and drove him to distraction. Could the articles mentioned in the state of his case have been prevented from coming before the court, he might perhaps have had some chance of escaping. But the messenger of the two letters was among the persons that had been taken up for the murder, had made a deposition in his own defense, and was to be produced on the trial. This particular confirmed his despair, and in a transport of madness, the unhappy man put an end to his life in the prison, the day before the assizes began. Prepared though I was to expect an account of Mr. W.'s death, the manner of it, however, filled my soul with horror, and had a more immediate effect upon my constitution than any of the shocks I had received before. From that sad hour, when no kind prop remained to stay my overburdened heart, I have sunk beneath its weight. My wasting form and slackened nerves gives hope of my release, and with this heavy task, which now draws near an end, I trust my woes shall cease. The first thing that occurred to my mind upon this tragical event was the benefit that my humane and hospitable friend of the cottage and her lovely child might possibly receive from it, and I had the satisfaction before I left the kingdom to hear that Mrs. N. had sufficiently proved her mother's marriage by the certificate and witness, and taken possession of Castle W., as sole heiress to her father's estate and fortune, which were very considerable. I did not make myself known to her, as under our different circumstances no manner of connection could ever properly have subsisted between us, but, as I was entitled to a jointure of four hundred pounds a year by marriage settlement, I put the deed, which had been left in my mother's possession, into the hands of an attorney at Chester to claim my rights, which were not denied 
and on receipt of the first payment I quitted England forever, and came over here to France, with the purpose of retiring immediately into a convent for life. I began my narrative of woe before I left England, and have completed it since I came over, and shall put it into the India house for you at Paris, if I may have life enough to carry me thither, as I design to fix my residence in some of the distant provinces beyond it. But I have been confined here these two days, not being able to proceed further from the failure of my strength and the dejection of my spirits. Adieu, my dearest brother. May watchful angels hover round you, and guard and guide your footsteps in the paths of virtue. I feel myself growing weaker every line I write, and think that here my journey and my cares will shortly end together. With my last sigh, I pray to be forgiven by heaven and you. And now, once more, adieu, I hope, forever. Maria End of Letter 66